Hanslobert was born in Delaware. He was in the majors for 15 years, mostly as a third baseman, from 1903 to 1917. I interviewed Hans in a hotel in Philadelphia. He was in very bad shape. He had been hit by a car. He had been seriously injured, had been in the hospital a number of months, was now out of the hospital. The insurance company had paid only a small pittance on his claim. The New York Giants indeed were supporting him. He was in pain, he wasn't happy, he was uh, single, his wife had died. So this was one of the few ball players that I talked to who was in financial straits. He lived in a flea bag hotel in a small room. That's all he had. He didn't even have a television set. He couldn't watch a ball game. He didn't have enough money to buy a television set. I went, I went out and bought him a TV set, a 14-inch black and white set. He was a very, very, very nice person who was wonderful to interview. And if, as you listen to him on the tapes, there's joy in his voice when he talks about baseball. No matter what circumstances he was in at the moment, sitting and talking for several hours about baseball made him happy. Well, we had a dairy at home, and I see, I, I went to school until I was about 17 and ran a dairy with 10 cows, brother and I. My duties were to milk those cows every morning, 10 of them, and then deliver the milk. Really? And then go to school besides. Is that what gave you those rests, huh? I guess so. <laughs> Milking? Yeah. I could milk a cow in five minutes. I guess it done me a lot of good. Kept me out of trouble, I know that. I yeah. had to go to bed at 7 o'clock at night and get up at 4. <laughs> How did it all begin? That's what I'd like to talk to you about. I learned my baseball in Williamsport. I had a team called the Demarest Sewing Machine, and I only lived about two blocks from the uh, grounds, and I used to go out there every in the evenings. Demarest Sewing Machine. Demarest Sewing Machine. How yeah. old were you then? Oh, I guess I was about 10 or 12, something like that. I recall the old athletic field there, and uh, I used to crawl under the fence to watch the uh, Williamsport Athletics play. I'd crawl under the fence. I didn't have to pay my 10 cents. Yes, your 10 cents, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd quickly brush the dirt off, and I got caught. Whoever the watchman was took me up in front of the uh, ticket office, and here's a big bulldog. And they chained me right next to the bulldog. Of course, the bulldog couldn't get at me. Oh. That was to stop me from crawling in. Teach you a lesson, huh? He kept me there for four innings. Now he says, what do you want to do? Could you see the game? Why? No, I couldn't see it. So he came over and unloosened the chains, and he says, now what do you want to do? I said, I'm going to watch the game. Yeah. <laughs> he thought that I was going to uh, hurry up and run home. <laughs> Next day I was out again. I'll never forget the first uniform I ever put on. I slept in it that night <laughs> as an amateur. Yeah. Yeah, I slept in that uniform that night. I couldn't get it off my back. And I'll never forget the first pair of baseball shoes. I never wore a cheap pair of baseball shoes. The, the Spalding featherweight shoe at that time was three fifty, And my father for Christmas gave me a little spend money or a little Christmas gift. He said, what are you going to buy? I said, I'm going to buy a pair of the best baseball shoes I can buy. I went downtown in Pittsburgh at Spalding's and got three and a half pair of shoes and there was snow on the ground. I, 
Mike came home, I put those shoes on, and geez, here I am out there prancing in the snow with those shoes. Oh, how old were you about then? Oh, around 18, 17 or 18. Did you think you'd ever really become a big league ball player? Well, when I started to play, yes, I did. And I really was wrapped up in baseball. You thought right? you'd make it. Yeah, I thought I could make it, yeah. How did Pittsburgh come to give you a trial? Well, see, I played with a semi-pro club in Pittsburgh called the uh, Pittsburgh AC. And so I happened to be playing. We went, went took a trip to Atlantic City. To, and Barney Dreyfus, the owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates, happened to be in Atlantic City and he saw me play. He asked me where I lived and I told him in Pittsburgh. Well, he says, how would you like to come out to the exposition park? It was over in Allegheny. And he said, uh, have a trial. Oh, I said, I'd be tickled to death to have a trial with the Pirates. Was Fred Clark managing? Fred Clark was the manager, and I went up on the porch. I had a trainer named Ed LaForce. He said, what do you want? Oh, real gruff, scared the tar out of me as soon as I entered the clubhouse. And who was in there but Hans Wagner? See, Wagner was my idol. So Hans Wagner says to me, hey, he says, come on in here and get in my locker. I says, oh, no. I said, I've got to see Mr. Clark first. Well, when Fred Clark came, why well, he asked me who I was and who sent me, and I told him. So they put me in a uniform, and, and they were playing the Giants that day. And Joe McGinnity was pitching, the first major league pitcher I ever faced. So Wagner said to me, uh, he called me hands number two, and he was hands number one. <laughs> now he said, here's my bat. He says, you're going up there. And he says, don't look for anything but a curved ball. Well, I picked up his bat, and Lord, I couldn't even swing it. It's too heavy. I said, oh, Mr. Wagner, that's too heavy for me. I can't swing that bat. So I was scared to death. You know, first crack at the big leagues. First ball over, curve ball, strike. That's right. Strike two. So Roger Bressenham catching said to me, uh, he said, hey, young fella, he says, get that gun off your shoulder. <laughs> so I didn't care where the next ball was thrown. I said, I'm going to swing at this one wherever it's thrown. Sure enough, it's curveball, and I hit it down to Bill Dolan, the shortstop. So when I walked back, I, I think I was the third hitter. Wagner was the fourth hitter. He said, what did he throw you? I said, three curveballs. He said, didn't I tell you? Well, I didn't get any hits until the eighth inning. That was your first big league game? Yeah, and I had two strikes on me, and I bunted with two strikes and beat it out. So McGraw, coaching at third base, I reached third base and he says, say, young man, he says, whoever taught you to bunt with two strikes? <laughs> and I says, nobody was looking for a busher to bunt with two strikes. Well, he says, you keep at it. He says, that's the way to keep them on their toes out there. And he and I became friends from that day on until he died. John McGraw and I, and just through that one little thing, and I addressed him as Mr. McGraw, a lot of youngsters used to call him Muggsy. Oh, and how he hated that word, Muggsy. Did he? I remember one time in Marlin, Texas, we were training, and some young fella called him. McGraw was telling him something. He says, all right, Muggsy. He says, well, you. He says, you've been reading the sporting news, I guess. He says, you address me as Mr. McGraw. Don't you ever call me Muggsy again. Oh, the kid was scared to death. <laughs> How did the veterans treat you coming up as a rookie? Oh, terrible. Really? They wouldn't speak to you and push you aside. But it was a damn good lesson. They taught you how to take it in the jam. And they were fine off the field, but on the field, ooh, they really made it tough for you. See, they didn't want you to take their job. How did you treat rookies then as 
Well, I changed. I said, I'm not going to treat rookies the way they treated me. I couldn't do that. I said, that don't belong in my book. See, in the early days, there were all kids off the sand lots and rough, tough boys. Oh, the game has changed. Of course, I believe that the players in those days were more aggressive. See, and we were only permitted to have 17 players on a club. 17? That was the limit. And if you got banged up, you had to play. And now, if you get a little scratch on your finger, they take you out. Yeah. They had no doctors in those days. Is there a doctor in the stand if somebody got hurt? I know I got hit in the head, and I thought I was down about five seconds here, and I was down about ten minutes. When I came to, I had to play, too. Today, oh, they wouldn't take a chance on a player if he was hit in the head with a pitch ball. Who was the pitcher, do you remember? Jeff Overall, and he played with me in Cincinnati, and he and I roomed together. And that overall let go of the high fast one, bing, hit me right here, and down I went. But when I came to, every step that I would take, I thought the ground was meeting my feet or I was stepping into a hole. And I had to play, and oh. I, you kept in the game. Yeah, they, I had to play. They had nobody else. I was all right for two weeks, and then I got so plate shy up there, I couldn't stand up at the plate, and oh, I had these terrible headaches at night. So I went to a doctor then. I had concussions. Oh, it hit me right there. You had a concussion for two weeks and... and yeah, I played. Gosh. What were the parks like in 1934 or 5? Well, they didn't take care of them like they do today. Was it, how, how would it compare to a park today in terms of the smoothness? Oh, of rough. The, terribly rough. Some fields were all skimmed. There was no grass on them at all. None at all? No. A major well, league park? Yeah, in Pittsburgh they had no grass on the infield and see they had a terrible flood there. They were right along the Ohio, well the Monongahela and Allegheny River formed right at the point. And when they had the flood in the spring all that water would back up in there and kill everything. I know around Decoration Day we played in there and the water up to here in the outfield. Really? See then they start putting grass infields in. But there were some rough fields, I'll tell you. How do you figure in your day, without any training facilities in a clubhouse and so on, you still had pitchers going nine innings more than you do now? You had well, players with less injuries? Yeah, that was the dead ball. Nine home runs led the league. I had seven one year, and, I only, and six of those I legged it around the bases. Babe Ruth changed the whole picture of baseball. I'll tell you this story about Babe Ruth. I am the first major league player that batted against Ruth when he broke in. As a pitcher. I came off that trip in 1914, and I was with the Phillies, and we trained in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. Baltimore was over at Fayetteville training, and Jack Dunn was the manager, and that's the year that he brought Ruth out of that school in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. So we were leading in the seventh inning, so Jack Dunn, I knew him very well, and he says, Hans, he says, I'm putting in a young pitcher the next inning, a left-hander. He says, I want you to give me your honest opinion of this young pitcher. I said, all right. Big gangling youth with, he had real thin legs and upper part of his body looked like Hercules. The first ball he threw up. And I said, oh boy, I said, I gotta be a little careful up here. I said, that kid's got something. Well, I hit down to the shortstop and I was thrown out. 
And on my way back, I had to pass Jack Dunn's bench, and he says, Hans, he says, what kind of stuff's that kid got? I says, fastest I've seen this year. I says, he's really fast. He says, wait until you see him hit. Paskett was playing center field for the Phillies. They have two on, two out. He hit one a country mile over Paskett's head, and before the ball got back, the game was over. And that night, we were all staying in the same hotel at Fayetteville, and uh, Philly players started to kid this Ruth, and he pulled out a knife and was going to whittle a couple of us. I wasn't in on it. Mm. We were put out of the hotel that night, <laughs> but the Baltimore Club weren't. And I slept in the railroad station that night in Fayetteville. That was my experience with Ruth. He never could remember a name. He used to call, he says, hi, old folks. But he had all sharp eyes. That Ruth could read an automobile license sign two blocks away. Really? You must have seen Joe Jackson play, too. Boy, he was a great hitter. He wasn't a real good outfielder, but he was a good hitter. How much gambling was there on the ball clubs you played with? They would bet on horses, card games. How big a stake in the poker game? 25, 25 cents. That was always wind up in a fight. McGraw stopped it. Some players get sore as blazes to lose a pop and throw the cards every place. Matty was a great crap shooter. Matty was a good poker player, too, I mean. A good bridge player. Great checker player. He must have been quite a person. Matty was a peculiar fella. I would never speak to him unless he'd speak to me. See, you'd say good morning to him and he wouldn't even look at you. So my wife said to me, what kind of a man is he? She says, I say good morning to him. Well, I said, that's his way. I said, don't pay any attention to that. I said, don't speak to him unless he speaks to you. But that was just his way. He couldn't help it. What was McGraw like as a manager? Finest manager I ever played for. I mean, he was what we call a quick thinker in baseball. See, he was acting while the other fellow was still thinking. Ty Cobb was on the same type. See, as soon as the situation came up, grab it. Don't wait. Maybe we made a lot of mistakes, surely, but McGraw was a fine man to play for. He had a heart as big as gold. Many a time he would ball a player out, and it wasn't just for the player, it was an object lesson for the rest of the players. And when he had a clubhouse meeting, they were classics. McGraw had a meeting and, uh, oh, he said, you, I know where you were last night, and you, and you, and he was going right down the line. And he always left the punchline for last, and he says, you, Benton, you dirty, drunken bum. He's giving him a terrible going over, so he gets him by the hand, and we had a big mirror, oh, as wide as that door was. Gets him, and he says, take a look at yourself. <laughs> so here's Benton. He's looking at himself, and McGraw makes the exit, see? Oh, we fell off the chairs laughing. <laughs> so uh, Larry Doyle and... I says to Larry, I says, I'm gonna, I says, you and I will stay in the locker now and don't let Benton see us. And I bet you a dollar to a donut, he goes and takes a look at himself in the mirror. Sure enough, all the players went out and Larry and I, we hid in the lockers. He goes over and he looks. I says, hey, Rube, I says, take a real good look. <laughs> you had some ones that, it wasn't Bugs Raymond around? Oh, I remember Bugs. I told him one time, I batted against Bugs, and he had the best spitball I ever batted against. I says, you I says, you don't spit on the ball. I says, he was half drunk out there anyway. I says, you blow your damn breath on the ball, the ball comes up here and it's drunk. <laughs> you were a teammate of Grover Cleveland Alexander. Yeah, he was Philly. Was he a drinker? 
Yeah. Before World War One. Oh, heavy drinker, and then he took epileptic fits on the bench. On the bench. He used to have to have a bottle of brandy or something on the bench to bring him back. Mm -hmm. And then he had some difficulties with his wife, and I think that's what started it. When he came back from the World War, he was a changed man. That's when he was drinking heavily. Yeah. But oh, after that, whew. How could a man who drank like that last so long? He had a wonderful constitution. And he never ran. He, he wouldn't do any running as a pitcher. I thought it was the legs that were so important. They are. He, he wouldn't have to warm up long. I recall in the World Series when St. Louis played the, the Yankees, and he was out all night. And he was drunker than a hoot all, all that night. See, the managers knew that he was drinking. They couldn't stop him. And he wasn't any kid anymore. No, and then he, see, he slept down there on the bench. They sent him down the bullpen. He was asleep down there when Haynes pulled a blister on his finger and Tony Lazeri was up with three on. And they says, Alec, and they shook him and woke him up and he threw five balls and he walks up the field. I can see him walking up from left field right now. He went in there and Tony Lazeri, the first ball that Alec threw up there, whoosh, he hit a line drive foul into the left field stands. It must have awakened Alec. He struck him out and retired the side and went on to win the ball game. And he wouldn't harm anybody. But who was he mean out on the mound? He'd hit you right between the eyes. Then I batted against him and he hit me over the heart one day and I thought he killed me. Right. Hit me right there and I went down. I couldn't breathe. And I had a lump that big inside of a minute. And I was trying to push a ball into right field, and geez, he threw it inside, and bowie. Did I go down? And I had to play, too. Afterwards, doctor kept that on the bench, and I couldn't breathe. I couldn't get my breath. There were rough days. Was he fast? Oh, he threw a heavy ball. See, he got the ball, but he had little short fingers. And then he see if you throw off the tips of your fingers, why the ball rides. But he threw it back in here, and ooh, and it hit bore in and like a lump of lead hitting him. Now Matty was fast, but he threw a real light ball. It would sail, yeah, but had a lot of stuff on it. And then the ball would do tricks up there, come up there like that, wave at you. Now Matty, when he threw his fade away, came out of here. Like a screwball. Well, that's a screwball, so yeah. he called it a fade away. Yeah. Now you take a look at Carl Hubble's arm today. See, Hubble threw his out of here. See, when they threw the ball in they, as soon as we saw that arm go like that, we knew it was a screwball. Well, his arm is like that. Uh -huh. See, he can't straighten his arm out. My right arm, I can't straighten that either. That's as far as I can straighten. Why is that? Well, from throwing so much. And Freddie Fitzsimmons, from throwing the knuckleball, his, his arm is like that, his right arm. Well, that goofy Gomez, you know, he said, he said, I'd hate to walk between those two guys. He says, both of them would have their hand in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> Fastest pitcher that I ever batted against was Walter Johnson. He had a damn one and hung down there, and then he, he would throw his hip at you like that and come out of here, and you couldn't find the ball. Mm. When did you bat against Johnson? When I was with the Phillies, we came up. In the spring. In the spring, we were going to open the season like... Today we played in Washington, and tomorrow we're opening up the season. Mm -hmm. And Clark Griffith put him in there, and I was a third hitter. The first two batters he hit, hit one guy here, another guy there, broke this guy's ribs. I'm the third hitter. 
I see two of them going to the hospital. And the first ball he threw at me, Jesus, we hadn't seen that kind of stuff all year. And he was wild. That's why Griffith put him in there. Wanted him to get control. And the next one. Well, now he's got me two and two. And the third one he threw behind my head. Well, naturally, when you're up there and the ball's coming at your head, you're going to go that way. And I went, and I just froze. Whatever hit me, they killed me. So I says, Walter, I says, there's the plate. And I says, I'm over here. I couldn't hit him with a pole. What a great man he was. He was a wonderful man on the field and off the field as well. What kind of a man was Frank Chance? Rough, oh, rough, gruff fella. Uh, he, he was a tough bird. I never cared for him. I mean, he wasn't a sort of a fatherly guy. Yeah, what McGraw was. And McGraw was, he'd always, I'll never forget what he told Mel Ott when Mel Ott first joined the club. Mel Ott was just a boy about 17, and he came out on the field and McGraw said, are you a catcher? He said, yes, sir. Very polite kid. Well, he says, uh, get the mask and chest protector and chin guards. Well, he says, I haven't got any mask or chest protector. Well, he says, what kind of a mechanic are you? He says, why don't you bring the tools out of the clubhouse? Mel told me, he says, I'll never forget my tools again. He says, I'll bring them out every day. <laughs> now, I like to play with McGraw. A lot of players didn't like him because he was too rough and gruff. But he had you fighting out there on the field. And then McGraw, when I was with the Phillies in 1913 and 14, he, he made a tour around the world and asked me if I would go along as a player. Where did you go? All over the world. We really? Were, we played in Japan, China, Manila, Australia, up through India, and Egypt, and Italy, France, England. And we played 31 games in the States before we sailed out of British Vancouver. Yeah, we played in Oxnard, took us to this ranch, came down on the old cowboys, and we had stagecoach and all, and they, and they had this ox roast. I'd been roasting it for a couple of days, and lima beans and onions and all that, and beer for breakfast. Mm. So after all, we had partaken of all this good food. The mayor of the town got up and put me on the spot. He asked me if I wouldn't run a horse around the bases that afternoon. Lord, I said, I'm not here to run horses around the bases. I'm here to play baseball. So he wouldn't take no for an answer. And down in left field, there must have been 200 cowboys on horseback watching the game. Wouldn't let us finish the game. They wanted to see this race between the horse and the man. So finally McGraw come to me and he said, Johnny says, uh, get ready. And he says, run the horse. He says, we can't finish the game. So out of this herd of horses, oh, the most beautiful black animal came out of there and a Mexican cowboy on him. Oh, he was all dressed in the chaps and the spangles. So I said, he couldn't speak English. I said, senor, practico. He says, we'll take a walk around the bases. I was to touch each inner corner of the base and he was to go around so not to run me down. But the horse was trained, see, to make those sharp turns. We walked around and the crowd roaring and they took moving pictures of it. Path A News was with us. So uh, I got off, bingo. I led at first base by at least 10 feet. And the second base I had picked up, I was 20 feet ahead. Now instead of that Mexican going around second, he shot right into shortstop. And he only missed me that far. I had a dodge to get clear. 
and I lost stride, but I picked up immediately, and uh, I was still in front, going to third, and I was, we're going down to the finish line, it was just like that. So when I pulled up at the finish, I said to Clem, I said, he was the referee, I said, how about it? He said, the horse won by a nose. I <laughs> said, listen, don't ever tell me that. I said, no horse could beat me by a nose. <laughs> I read somewhere there was a field day they had in Cincinnati. Oh, I was you, in that field, yeah. With you going around the bases and around. Sort of the bases. We had to start with the pistol start AAOU rules. Well, I ran that in 13 four fifths. Well, that's still a record, I mean, uh, with a pistol start. Sometimes you refer to people calling you John and sometimes Hans. Well, see, John in German is Johannes, and they shorten it to Hannes. And then in Dutch, it's hands. Oh. And I played basketball with Wagner in Pittsburgh, and he called him Hans Wagner's All-Stars. Well, he and I became very friendly, and it was all through that first meeting of mine when he was in the Pirates Clubhouse, when he invited me into his locker and kind of took a liking to me, and I took a liking to him. He acted like a father to me. I mean, he helped me when I needed help. Yeah. So I would get postcards from him when he'd be down in a training camp and he'd always address it from hands number one to hands number two. <laughs> what kind of person was he? Oh, talk about a grand old man. Real fine fellow. Wouldn't harm anybody. And he was always trying to help the kids. After a double header, you know what he would do? There'd be kids playing out there. He'd go out there and play with those kids. Many a time I saw him out there. He just played by instinct. He was a natural. I saw a movie. With Edward G. Robinson in it. He took my part. I had a... Edward G. Robinson as Hans Hobart, yes. It was called uh, the, the Big, Big Leaguer. The Big Leaguer. Did you have anything to do with it besides lending your name to it? Well, see, I was the uh, technical director. Oh, yeah. And I had to live with Edward G. Robinson for two weeks. To, he had to get on to my sayings and my actions and all that. But the movie director, the man that was in charge, says, why didn't you play your own part? Well, I says, it wasn't me. I says, I'm not an actor. Well, he says, you could have done better than Edward G. I says, oh, he got the dough. I didn't. And we had all the players there for, took over two weeks to make that picture. Players got $10 a day. If they yeah. said anything, then they'd get 10 more. Yeah. Hubble got about five grand out of it. I got about two. Some guy in New York got my share. How'd you feel when about, I guess, 1918 was your last active year, yeah. right? That well, was the end of your the legs go first, then your eyes. I could tell balls that I used to beat out in the infield, I'd be thrown out as full step. I was still fast, but I could tell that the legs were going back. What did you think about doing that when that time came? Well, see, I went to West Point for eight years. How did you do that? How did that come about? McGraw. Did you like it? Oh, well, it was wonderful work with those cadets. And now I've been a scout for New York and San Francisco since 1945. And you're still an active scout. Oh, yeah. And I missed out on the player's pension by one year. See, I'd be drawing about 450 or 500 a month now. There was no such thing as pensions in those no. days. See, it started around in the middle 40s. Now it's a business. They want to see how much money they can make and then invest it. And I invested mine in the stock market when we had the crash. I lost everything I had. All of my savings just wiped me out. 
If the market hadn't have broken, I'd have lost this house. It's rough. If you had to do it all over again, would you have been a ball player like you were and all? I certainly would have. I mean, I got a, I'm still getting a great kick out of baseball. I learn something new every day, as old as I am. But the kick that I get out of baseball is to try to help a youngster and, and watch how he improves. You have no regrets out of oh, no. being a ball player. See, and it was fun. In the olden days, we played the ball just like we were playing for fun. Nah, baseball has been real good to me, and I'm going to be good to baseball. <laughs>